in your Bibles. Does anyone need a Bible this morning? If you need a Bible, stick your hand up there, and we'll get a Bible to you. There we go. Excellent. We've got a whole pile of new ones there. So if you don't have a Bible of your own, please do accept that as a gift from LBC. We love the living Word of God. In your Bibles there, please turn with me to Ruth. We have paused John over the summer, and we're going to do a wee short look at Ruth and a look at Jonah as well over the summer. Just with everyone coming and going and all the holidays and stuff, we thought it would be lovely to dwell in Ruth and Jonah. Is that me? Also, too, one thing I did forget to announce, tonight is communion at 6 o'clock here at LBC. We do an evening communion service once a month, and this week Ben and Nick are going to lead us this evening, so please do come along 6 o'clock tonight as we remember our Lord together here at LBC. You're all very welcome to come along that 6 o'clock tonight. Ruth chapter 1. In the day of the judges' rule, there was a battle in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and his wife Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Melon and Kilion. They were Ephrodites from Bethlehem in Judea, and they went to the country of Moab. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Melon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons. <coughs> then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had returned to his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to Judah. But Naomi said to the two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and the dead. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in the womb that I may give you husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say, I have hope, even if I have a husband this night, bear sons, would you wait until they grow in? Would you refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people and your God, Yahweh, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, 
Yet they arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of the barley season. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together as we look at God's word. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight and through the power of your Holy Spirit to give us aid, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. When I was living up in Fife in Scotland near Pitt and Weem, there was a remarkable museum just up the road from us about 10 minutes up the road. And you would see, you'd hear about this museum once you sort of hit the motorway out of Edinburgh. It was called Scotland's Secret Bunker, which was where the government would go of the day if the Russians or the Soviets had decided to basically throw a few missiles at us. And the great thing about this bunker was nobody in Fife knew it was there. Only a few government officials knew it there, but the Soviets knew it was there. So Fife was going to get targeted with even more missiles because of this bunker. But it was a really creepy place. I don't know if you've ever been to one. There's one down in London called Kelvin Hatch as well. You drive up this long, windy, dark country lane with this narrow road, and you pass through sort of discreet security. There's a wee bar bar fence, and there's a wee guard post, which looks a bit over the top, and you arrive at this farmhouse, and it's literally just a two-story house in the middle of the countryside that only the Russians knew about. <laughs> and as you go in through the front doors, it's like entering into somebody's lounge, but as you go down the stairs, there's a passageway that takes you down. There's this sloping corridor, and it really is very creepy as you go down this dark corridor into the bunker. And as you walk down the corridor and turn left, there's these massive, and I mean massive, blast doors, these big things, a couple of ton each. They're, see the size of the shutters at the back of the church there? They would easily dwarf them. These doors would be shut, and you'd be locked in. And you know the fascinating thing about these doors, and this is, this is things I like to do, these massive, big blast doors have these extremely tiny hinges. That amuses me, things like that. So you've got these big, massive two-ton, three-ton, four-ton blast doors that swing on these incredibly tiny hinges. Big doors swing on small hinges. As we come to the book of Ruth today, Ruth has been described by many as one of the most beautiful short stories in all of history. We know it's in the inspired word of God, but even writers who have no belief have come to Ruth and said it's the perfect story. It comes in the midst of a, a time in Israel's history when the judges ruled. We reckon it was around the time of Judges chapter 10 when there was famine in the land. It's judges. The judges period of history was catastrophic for Israel. You think our politicians are bad? The judges in that time in Israel, it was a dark time in the nation's history. And God had raised up judges to deliver them and the people had rebelled and he had to raise up more judges. There was wars, rumors of wars. People were being taken away into slavery. It was a dark time. And Ruth comes in this beautiful... How many of you enjoyed the rain the past couple of weeks? Well, we were driving over the A66 the other day. We got caught right in the middle of this downpour that was like, I thought it was going to have to turn into Noah and the ark at one point. And I love it when the rain comes down in torrents and it's dark and it's black and then all of a sudden the sun just breaks out. And it's beautiful, isn't it? In the ground, you see all the colors as everything's been washed, including your dirty car you forgot to wash for weeks. The Book of Ruth is a ray of sunshine. <laughs> it's a ray of sunshine in a period of history where it was bleak, but it's also a big door swinging on small hinges. The Book of Ruth 
is a reminder to us that actually the history of the world isn't made by Napoleons. It isn't made by prime ministers and kings. It's made up in individual families and lives all over this globe. God works his miracles, his providences, and his salvations out on small hinges, in small contexts. In context that people overlook, in context that people would forget about, God is at work in Bethlehem. This wasn't Jerusalem. This wasn't the capital. God was working the deliverance. And ultimately, as we find out later on, the Savior of the world through a widow and a foreigner. Isn't that amazing? Big doors swing on small hinges. God's goodness is in these daily scenes of life. I bet you this morning if I went around LBC and asked you how you're doing, there would be family problems. There would be heartache. There would be funerals. There would be weddings. There would be joy. There's graduations. There's house searching. There's build problems. And we think that these things don't matter to God. We think that God's so big and so powerful that he's only interested in the prime ministers and the big things. Absolute rubbish. God's here in this household. He's walking the road beside Naomi. He's holding her hand in the dark when nobody else is there to hold her hand. He's with Ruth, the foreigner in a foreign land who can't even speak the language. He speaks her language. As Paul reminded us last week, he speaks the heart language of each one of us. Big doors swing on small hinges. And the providence of God in this story is amazing. Ruth and Esther are two wonderful books, are they not? How many of you like Ruth and Esther? I prefer Ruth, but that's, I'll not tell you why, but I prefer Ruth, Esther and all that makeup and stuff, I couldn't be bothered with that. But the amazing thing about Ruth and Esther is this, God's in the background, is he not? Esther is the only book in the entire Bible that doesn't mention the Lord once, and yet he's everywhere in it, isn't he? And in Ruth here too, only twice do we hear in this chapter, which we looked at and later on in chapter 4, of God directly intervening in the situation, and yet His invisible hand is everywhere over this whole book. God swings big doors and small hinges and works His providence. Providence is a big theme in the book of providence and faithfulness. Next week we'll look at providence, this week we're looking at faithfulness, but providence just as a sidebar here is God working out and sustaining this creation and working out all things together for good. Romans 8, verse 28, for those who love him. Genesis 50, 20. Remember that remarkable scene where Joseph, the life of Joseph is a case of God's providence. Remember Joseph with his technicolor dream coat? You've all got the song stuck in your head now, don't you? <laughs> Joseph, who wasn't the best brother, gets thrown into slavery by his brothers. They really didn't like the guy. They threw him into slavery, told the daddy he'd eaten wild lions. Joseph gets carted off to Egypt and lives a remarkable life in Egypt. He goes really from rags to riches, from prison to prime minister. What does he say at the end of his life in Genesis 50, 20? And the brothers come before him and he is prime minister of all of Egypt and they're terrified in case he gets his own back on them. You guys meant it for evil against me, yes. But God meant it for good so that many would be delivered. Providence, as I say, is a theme we'll touch on next week, but it means that God not only created this entire world, but he created some people this idea that God made the world and kind of stepped back. Like you hear this thing, remember those clocks? You don't see them much nowadays. Remember those clocks you used to wind up? What do you call them? Windy uppy clockies? <laughs> and I, I was a nightmare of these things because I'm one of those folk that, you know, if it's not fully wound up, and I used to pop them in the springs anyway. People think that's what creation is like. God wound the world up and let us go our own way and doesn't care. 
No, God's providence is his intentional goodness and grace at work in the life of the world, sustaining and rising. To every season under heaven, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones. Here's one for those who are dating, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time for love, a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. God is at work in this world through his providence and through his goodness. God is at work in this world to bring all things together around Jesus Christ and God is at work in your and my lives. And if you're here this morning and you don't even believe in God, you think, well, what are you talking about? Trust me, God is at work in your life in ways you can't even see or know at this minute. And you're not here by chance or by accident. Perhaps you're sitting here listening to me saying, well, Daniel, you know what? Actually, I'm going through a pretty difficult time. I can identify with verses 1 to 5 here with a sweet and bitter providence. A tale of three widows. It's a painful time in my life. Let me just quote the words of Samuel Rutherford. When God sends a wind to blow upon you, be it ill or for good, the wind does one thing, it blows you towards him. Isn't that beautiful? And we think of providence, we tend to think of luck and divine chance and, and blindness. We think of a, a computer, we think God like a machine, input in, input out. No. When God sustains and upholds the universe, when he holds you in his hands, remember the hands he holds you in are nail-pierced hands. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. No greater proof exists of God's love than this, that when we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us. Christian friend, this morning, whatever you're going through, know that the Lord is with you and he holds you with nail-pierced hands. He does love you. And he is working all things together for good, even in the difficult times, even in the painful times, he is still working. But verses 1 to 5 is a sweet and bitter providence here. We start this story. There's a famine in the land of Egypt, or Egypt, Bethlehem. And so this family moved. We reckon they were a rich family. There's not much evidence of that, but because they're a fat, what does it say there? It says later on about the connection, Ephrodites, they're from Bethlehem. We reckon they're a rich family, so they're probably well-to-do. They can afford to move. They move to the place where there's food. The Scripture doesn't really say there's any judgment connected with this. But as they go there, disaster strikes. Emelech means God is my king, and it's his poor wife who has to prove that. Naomi goes there. They have two sons. Now, parents, when you're naming your kids... Or young ladies, when you're seeking a potential husband, if the husband comes to you and says, my name is sickly, or my name is pining, stay away. <laughs> That's what it means. Male on a killer, it means sickly or pining. It's not exactly what you want to hear in blind date, is it? Keep swiping. But these two kids, they, they meet, they marry, they fall in love with Ruth and Orpah. Orpah is a funny name. It actually means in Hebrew, she of thick hair. And apparently if you've got thick hair like me, it means you're stubborn. So there you go. She of thick hair is stubborn. So Orp is stubborn. Ruth is a Moabite name, but it could possibly be linked to the Hebrew word for friendship or refreshment. These names are important in the Scripture, especially the Old Testament. Names signify character in many ways. And Naomi herself is an interesting one. It's a beautiful name she has, and yet she denies it. 
Later on in the chapter, she wants to call herself Mara after the place of bitterness because of the hardships in her life. But these three come together, and there's a bitter providence. The, two, the husband dies, and the two sons die. And in a culture like that, in an agrarian society, there was no social security. There was no welfare net. Your husband, your sons, they were the ones, the family were the ones that looked after you. Naomi is left alone with these two girls, these two strange girls who not only aren't even her own daughters, they're worse, they're daughters-in-law. And she's in a foreign land with absolutely nothing. But Psalm 68, verse 5, does remind us that the Lord is the Lord of widows and the fatherless. And so in this sweet and bitter providence in verse 6, God intervenes. She arises with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she has heard that the Lord has returned to his people and given them food. God steps in and changes the situation. And God's providence is like that. Sometimes his hand is invisible and sometimes he answers directly and powerfully through prayers. How many of us have had prayers answered? Isn't it great when it happens? And God always answers prayer. It's either yes, no, or maybe, but isn't it great when we see? How many of you, this is a confession for me. How many, when you pray sometimes and God answers, you're like, oh. <laughs> We're like that, aren't we? But he does. And here God sees the situation. And he feeds the people in the fields around Bethlehem. And Naomi hears about it. And she must have a longing in her to go home, a longing to go back to her land where they worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, where she's family at least who will look after. And so she starts out this journey. In the bitter providence, she moves. And with her, she brings these two girls. Now the two girls, Ruth and Orpah, come with her along the way. And they, they have this remarkable conversation. And you can sort of understand it here. You know why? When somebody gives you something in this country, we go through this rigmarole, don't we? This is a gift for you. Oh, you really shouldn't have. Well, that's okay. I'll take it back then. No, we, we do these rigmaroles. Oh, you shouldn't have. And we go backwards and forwards. And so this starts here with, with Naomi and Ruth and Orpah. Naomi's headed back home. She's determined to go back. And so she starts along the road. And the two girls follow her. And he says, no, go back to your mother's house. Yahweh bless you. You've dealt kindly with me. May the Lord bless you and may you find a new husband. They kissed them, they lifted up their voices, and they wept. I mean, ladies, you do these things better than us. If this is a bunch of men, we'd be all like, oh, oh I'll see you later. And a wee tear would be going around our cheek. Or you know, we're all churned up inside, but we can't show emotion. So you guys, the ladies here just go for it. I mean, there'd be mascara if they went to certain local churches. There'd be tears, there'd be Kleenex everywhere. This is a, this is a mess. And still, big doors swing and small hinges. God's in this mess. <coughs> we have this idea in our churches that God doesn't want to see our tears. God doesn't want to see our broken hearts. That we, we have to keep it all together. What utter rubbish. And what a contradiction to the Scripture. When we start back in September with John's Gospel, one of the things we'll hit straight away is chapter 11 where Lazarus dies. Jesus' friend. And I love it. Have you ever wondered about that scripture? Sorry if one of you guys is preaching on I'm pinching on you now. Have you ever wondered about that scripture? Where Jesus, who is the power of the resurrection, stands at his friend's grave, whom he's about to raise from the dead, and still, what does he do? He weeps. Jesus weeps. And the Greek word there for weeping isn't a sort of a sniffle and a Kleenex. It is snorting 
words. There's anger. There's tears. Because death isn't the way it should be. How did I get onto this? The scene here. There's tears. There's mascara. There's snotter everywhere. And yet God's in it. I wish we would get it into our hearts. And I say this to myself that God in our lives by the power of his Holy Spirit for all seasons in times of laughter and in times of weeping in times where we're wondering where the next paycheck's going to come from and in times when surprisingly the bank balance is healthier than you thought which never happened. All phases. The Savior who saved us saves us from our sin and saves us totally and utterly to be transformed into His likeness and to live with Him forevermore. People say the book of Ruth isn't a love story, and in the conventional sense, no, it's not Silla Black's blind deed. And yet it is a love story of God's faithful love. The Hebrew word in here is Hesed, and it's a beautiful word. It's a word which our English struggles to translate, it struggles to understand. It means faithfulness, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant, faithfulness. In short, it is the quality that means a person acts for the benefit of the other without expecting anything in return. That is the God of the Old Testament who is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in you, a God of faithful, merciful, kind love who bears with his people because he made them a promise that he would be their God and they would be his people despite their perverse and constant complaining and rebellions. Hosea talks about this. The prophets talk about it, even though Israel sinned, come back to me, says the Lord. And Hosea is a very powerful book. I love Hosea. But it starts out quite, I remember I had a friend of mine, I heard the story from a friend of mine who um, they were trying to get their mother-in-law to come along to church with them and mother-in-laws again. And they took her to this, this Baptist church in Cambridge, in fact, Eden Baptist. And they took her along to this church, and the reading that week was from Hosea. Now, it was Hosea chapter 1, and as you know from Hosea chapter 1, especially in the old King James, it's called whoredom. So it went on about this adultery and this whoredom. And the mother-in-law sat there the whole way through the service. At the end of the service, she turned to the, uh, the couple and said, is Hosea in the Anglican Bible? <laughs> <laughs> But God describes himself as a husband who's cheated on, and yet he wants to yearn after the bride. I don't think we truly know the power, the strength of God's love. Any wonder Paul prays in Ephesians, oh, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. And here this faithful Hesed love is displayed very beautifully by Ruth. They've had their tears, they've had their weeping, they've lifted up their voices. She says, right, no, look, we've done this bit. Go back to your people, verse 11. Turn back, my daughters. Look, I'm past the age of bearing children. I have nothing, nothing to give you. Why would you come with me? Go back. And so Orpah of the thick hair goes back. There's no judgment in that. But there is an interesting verse there in verse 15. Orpah goes back, she kisses the mother-in-law, walks off. Ruth, sorry, verse 14, clings to her. The word there for cling is actually the same word that is used of Adam and Eve when God marries them. Now, that's not implying that Naomi and Ruth are getting married, but it implies that strong connection. 
that faithfulness to others, that hesed love, that commitment. Ruth had everything to live for in Moab. Everything. And yet, I wonder if she saw something in Naomi that was different. Look at verse 15. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. Look, if you look, she's just over the brow of the hill. You can see her there with the thick hair in the wind. Go with her. Go back to her gods. This is the first time this has been brought into the equation, but we have to bear in mind that Naomi and Amalek, there was never any mention or hint in Scripture that they compromised their belief in God in Moab. They were faithful believers in a foreign land. They would have lived as the people of the Old Testament covenant lived. And I wonder if Ruth and Naomi saw something of this. In fact, to be honest, if Ruth and Naomi got married to those two sons, they would have had to make some sort of conversion to be married. They would have had to become proselytes to get into the family of Israel. Orpah's walked away from that. But Ruth, Ruth must have saw something here in Naomi. That this lady, this lady who was a widow, who had nothing in the world, everything had been taken for, and yes, she was quite vocal about her discontent, but yet, like Job, in all that she said, she did not sin. She acknowledged God's providence in good times and bad. And she still trusted in the Lord. And so we have verse 16 here. Now, you'll have to forgive me, but I... Um, this was my first Bible I ever bought for myself. And it's no King James being from Northern Ireland, but I just, I think there's something about the King James when you hear these verses, so please forgive me. We all know that the Lord spoke in King James English. <laughs> but I love these languages in verse 16. Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge, and my people, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, will I die, and there I'll be buried. The Lord do so more to me, and also if aught but death part thee and me. And the King James actually gets Ruth's determination here, right? When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, Naomi stopped speaking, which was quite a miracle, as we'll see from the rest of the book. What a beautiful picture of faithful love. Many of you, when you got married, perhaps had those verses on your wedding bands, did you not? They're great verses for weddings. And it shows total commitment, total dedication, total support. Look at the language of this, break it up a wee bit. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn from following you. I will go with you. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She declares faith in the living God of Israel. And here's the ultimate form of commitment. Where you die, I will remain there and I will die there too and I will be buried with you. Mommy-in-law, you're stuck with me. Don't, don't push me away. I trust the God that you have trusted. I've seen him at work. See how big doors swing and small. This is God. God is at the widows. He's with the poor. He's with the discontent. He's working his miraculous salvation and grace out in funerals and weddings and incidents. He does it in Tesco's. He does it all over the place. God is in our lives. And if that's in the mission field of Papua New Guinea where folk are living and dying like this without hope, or if it's in Lincoln, God is at work in his providences because people are people who need this faithful, steadfast love directed at them, both from the Lord, which he did through Jesus Christ, Ruth is but a glimmer of the faithful love that Jesus would show us who became flesh and walked the earth. 
I mean, Ruth's just moving country. I mean, I've done that. That's easy. No. <laughs> Ruth's moving country and language. Jesus came down from heaven, took on flesh, and felt weakness, felt tired. I mean, the, the mind boggles, doesn't it? Charles Wesley tries to capture it. Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. Who can explore this strange design? And yet, where we went as lost sheep, he came and pursued and brought us back, did he not? Our people, the church he brought together, and he brought us to our Father, the God of Israel, the God of our Lord and Jesus Christ. And he died where we could not die to bear the penalty of sin that we could not bear. And he was buried. And we too are buried with him in baptism as we're raised into newness of life, and he will never leave us. Ruth and, Orpah, Ruth and Naomi will be parted by death one day. Christ Jesus will walk with us even through death itself, and we will never be parted with him if we're in him. Isn't that an amazing thought? You can say amen, it's okay. They, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Yes, we are called to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, but we're called to proclaim what we know, and we must know the love of God in our lives, believe it, trust it, let it transform us through the Holy Spirit, and then go out and proclaim it. Ruth had some sort of experience where she saw the faithfulness of God, she trusted, and she sows this faithful love to Naomi as a beautiful model of what the Lord shows to us, and so they go together to Bethlehem. Verses 19 to 22, the door swings open. I mean, there is something beautiful about these scenes, is there not? The two of them go to Bethlehem, and the whole town was stirred because of them. How many of us love a good bit of gossip? I know we're not supposed to say yes, but we know what we're like. Aren't we? Oh, have you saw her? We've just moved into a close, and I, I've never lived in a close before. I've lived in a farm. I've lived in a sort of paramilitary estate, and I've lived in a, I've lived in a street. Never lived in a close before. It's quite interesting because all the houses face into each other. And I, we turned, mind you, the other night we arrived at 12 o'clock and the, the van had one of those really loud reversing lights. So I was trying to be really quiet and discreet, put the van into reverse at 12 o'clock. Beep, beep, beep. So, so the neighbors knew we'd arrived. But it's funny how the blinds peek open, isn't it? The curtains rattle and folk are looking out. I've had one of those conversations and actually for the first time in my life, people weren't horrified when I said I was a Baptist minister, which is a good thing. But imagine Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a small town. We reckon Naomi was a rich lady, and when they left to go to Moab, it would have caused a stir. They would have been, even 10 years later, this still would have been talked about, and here she comes up the road. You can imagine the whispers, can't you? In fact, one of the masses, this Naomi, she must have looked a lot older. Time had taken its toll, so they'd be, oh, her dress size has dropped down. She's got a few more gray hairs. Can you imagine the talk? Who's that with her? Who's that? She went out with, with, with three men. Now she's back with one woman who, who, and bear in mind, Ruth would have looked like a foreigner because she was a Moabitess. Even though it was just across the Jordan, they would have been different culture, different dress. She wouldn't have spoke the language. Who's that? So living through a bitter providence, God has intervened. Ruth has displayed to us the faithfulness of God in action faithfulness to her mother-in-law, but also to her God, two things which we would do well to emulate as well. 
and they've arrived back, and here we see God's providence in action. We'll pick this up next week in chapter 2, but look at verse 22 there with me. They returned to the country, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, you and I may not get excited about barley harvests, but this is the providence of God's door swinging open. More stuff is about to happen. Do you want to find out what it is? Come back next week. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, what was off me may it fall to the wayside. But what was from you may it be clearly seen. We acknowledge that we struggle to capture the meaning of the word of your faithfulness, your loving kindness to us. We think of the psalmist as they describe it, the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. His loving kindness, his mercy, his grace. Lord, may we know that through the power of your spirit in our hearts. For believers this morning, whatever time and season we're in in our life, whatever wind of providence has blown against us, may we turn and be blown to you. May we see your love for us and may that be the foundation of how we assess this world. May we not judge it by circumstance, but judge it by the cross of Jesus Christ, wherein he has shown us his love. A love that saves, a love that keeps, a love that will not let us go. We pray for those in our midst who feel the loneliness of separation, who may feel like Naomi. Lord, we pray that in those moments where that pain is apparent, that your grace would be more than sufficient. May we know that you care for us as your word describes. Not one hair of our head falls to the ground and you know it. For those of us who are standing on the brink of new challenges, perhaps have put a foot on the road and have stepped out from a country that was familiar, from a school that was familiar, from a circumstance that was familiar, help us to keep our eyes on you to go where you lead us, knowing that you will be with us in all things. And if there's any here this morning, Lord, who do not know you, who think this all sounds so, so far-fetched that there's a God who would love, who would save, who would deal with sin, who would show faithful love and expecting nothing in return, that is you, Lord. May they know you through the power of your Holy Spirit and be transformed by your gospel. Whoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. May they repent and trust you this morning. And in all things, we thank you for your continued love to us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I'll ask the worship team to come back up as we sing our closing song together, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah.